Justin was born around 100 AD in a small village in Samaria. He was a diligent inquirer of the truth. For nearly 32 years, he sought to know and understand what was to him an elusive truth. In all of his studies of the ancient philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, none of them could satisfy the insatiable desire he had to know the truth. Then one day, when he was walking by the sea, he took up a conversation with an old man who himself was a Christian. As they walked along the shoreline, this old man convinced him of the truth that is in Jesus. Later in life, Justin would pin several apologies in which he sought to defend the Christian faith against these ancient Socratic philosophers that he had spent so many years studying. Ultimately, though, at the age of 65, he would be martyred for his faith. One who was killed alongside of him that day declared, I am a Christian, having been freed by Christ, by the grace of Christ, I partake of the same hope. Friend, have you ever considered how costly it is to follow Christ? Have you ever considered that following after Jesus comes at a great cost? Have you counted that cost? Our passage this morning, I hope, will prove to be quite helpful in answering some of these questions about how costly it It is to us as disciples to follow after Jesus. For in it we find Jesus calling His disciples to count the high cost of following after Him. In fact, following Jesus, as we'll find, might cost us even our own life. Now our text this morning begins a new and what is the longest section in Luke's Gospel. Over the next several months, we will consider this section of Luke's Gospel that stretches here in chapter 9 and verse 51 all the way to chapter 19. The cross will loom large in each of these passages along Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. This is Jesus' final year of ministry, and He is on His way to the, to the end, to the culmination, the, the point and the purpose of why He has come. Everything that He has come to accomplish will be completed there in Jerusalem. But we see also not only the cross-centeredness of these texts, but we will find Jesus teaching His disciples of the costliness of following Him. You'll find in this section very little miracles or healings. The primary focus will be leaving the disciples with a teaching base, a material that they can then spread around the world. My hope as we study this over the next several weeks, that you and I will come to understand what it means to take up our own cross and to follow after Christ. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9 this morning, in verse 51. Luke chapter 9. This morning we're going to consider verses 51 through 62 of Luke's Gospel. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans 
to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The gospel mission is one of urgency and also comes at a great cost to both the Savior and to those who choose to follow after Him. This is Luke's point. He wants you to understand that the mission of the gospel is one that is urgent. There's an urgency to this text. His face was set to Jerusalem. He he had an undetermined urgency. We see even in the call to these disciples an urgency to forsake all other and to pursue Christ. But we also see a costliness, don't we? A costliness to Christ. He knows what awaits Him in Jerusalem. He's not naive. He's not ignorant. He's the omniscient, all-knowing God. He knows what awaits for him in Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples that he must be killed by the scribes and Pharisees. He will be raised in three days. He, He knows what awaits, but there is not only a costliness to the Savior. We see through these three would-be disciples, there is a costliness to following Jesus. And so really the purpose of our time this morning is to help us follow Jesus more faithfully. And we see here in our text, it it divides these two paragraphs into two aspects of following Jesus. First, if you have your Bibles open, in verse 51 through 56, we see that following Jesus is cross-centered. Cross-centered. Jesus' ministry was cross-centered, and those who follow after Him have a singular determination to follow after Him in this way. And then we see then in verse 57 through 62, 57 through 62, we see that following Jesus is costly. And we'll look at three costly encounters that Jesus has. First there in verses 51 through 56, we see that following Jesus is cross-centered. Now what do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus' entire ministry was about the cross. Was about completing the Father's work that He had given to Him. 
Notice with me what he says there in verse 51. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had a resolve to fulfill his Father's will for his life. In fact, we know through the Scriptures that Jesus came to do the Father's will. That though the cross looms large in this text, His commitment to the Father outweighs the suffering that awaits Him. The word that Luke chooses to use here, taken up, is a reference to His ascension. And so, what we have here is an understanding, a a holistic understanding, that it's not merely the cross, though we want to center on the cross, that it includes not only His death, but His resurrection and ascension, which of course is an important aspect of Luke's second volume, what is known to us as the Acts of the Apostles. In that book, Luke takes up what it means for the church to live under the rule of the risen and ascended Lord. That's not what we're thinking of here, though. It is important for us to know and remember that Jesus came not out of some affectionate love for humanity, but ultimately to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus is about the Father's business. Those then that benefit or are benefactors of the gospel, you and I, who claim the name of Christ, are being, we understand, enveloped in an eternal love between an eternal Father and His eternal Son. A plan and purpose that has its rooting not in humanity, but in the divine. And therefore, if we rightly understand that theological point that is being made here by Luke's that, that we come to understand that our security is in the eternal and not in the temporal decisions of men. That Jesus was about a mission to give glory to His Father. And you and I have been included in this eternal plan of redemption not out of some affectionate love for us, but for His own Son And for the Father. This is what Luke drives home at. That the days drew near. This is of divine purposefulness. There was divine purpose behind Jesus' ministry. He didn't wander aimlessly in the wilderness. He didn't wander aimlessly in Galilee. Every move, every step had a divine purpose. And we notice here also in verse 51, His determination. His determination. He set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, he had a singular focus to do what God wanted him to do. He would not waver. Not even as the enemy tempted him in the wilderness, or he himself being weighed down with the sins of humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane, would deter from this divine plan. But we also notice The cross-centeredness of the gospel is found in the universality of the gospel. Not only in Jesus' determination, but the fact that the gospel was not exclusive. 
No, notice what I mean here. Look there at verse 52. As they begin to set out on their journey, Jesus does, as any good rabbi would do, he makes preparations for their travel. It's not like he could just take up to the next hotel along, the, along their journey. They had to make preparation, and so we're told that he sent messengers ahead of him. We don't know how many, perhaps just a, a few, maybe it was many, but he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now, surprisingly, here in the text, Jesus begins his triumphant march towards Jerusalem by going through a hostile nation, a nation that is not Jewish, a nation that has long rejected. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, and they hated each other for centuries. Of course, this, will, this is a theme that will come up again and again throughout this section, And it's important to understand the history behind it. The Samaritan land was originally a part of the southern aspect, or the southern part of the nation of Israel. It had split away. They had anointed their own king and set up their own boundaries. And this infuriated the Jews. They they were infuriated by the Samaritans because they saw them as both traitors and as ethnically impure. They had intermarried with the nations around them. And so, it's not surprising that we find there in verse 53 that the people did not receive Jesus because His face was set towards Jerusalem. If you know your Bible at all, you know in John's Gospel, Jesus went to a woman who was a Samaritan, and there was this whole discussion about where does true worship happen? Does it happen here in Samaria, or does it happen in Jerusalem? And Jesus has that famous line where he says, there's coming a day when people will worship God in spirit and in truth. They'll not worship here on this mount that was given by Jacob, nor will they be uh, worshiping God in Jerusalem. You see, by the time of 2 Kings 1, the, the people of Samaria had separated from the southern kingdom of Judah and had appointed their own king, Hosea. And King Hosea led the nation to be fiercely independent and nationalistic. This is why they grew to hate the Jews so much, and vice versa. And we learn in 2 Kings 1 that Elijah had confronted Ahaz, Ahaziah rather, because he had refused to see Elijah as a true prophet of God. And so he sent servants to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, rather than the god of Israel. This was a total rejection of Yahweh as the one true God. And Elijah rebuked Ahaziah. And so Hosiah repeatedly sent soldiers to arrest Elijah. And so there's this back and forth scene, a very high drama. There is the Second Kings opens of Hosiah, this, this foreign king, arresting the prophet of the one true and living God. And, and why this is all important, because right there in Second Kings chapter 1, Elijah says this, I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. It makes sense then why John and James, the sons of thunder, as Jesus often called them, would call in the kind of uh, heritage of Elijah to call fire down from heaven. Now, you'll be reminded here, we're kind of uh, jumping back into the text, that just a few days earlier, the disciples, particularly James and John, had experienced what? They had seen Elijah. 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. And perhaps they, they were like, ooh, this guy gets us excited. We, we want to call down fire right now from heaven and curse these wicked Samaritans. Finally, Jesus, will you let us just finally destroy these people? They have been a plague upon us. They have been a nuisance for centuries. Will you judge them today? But as we find in the text, their timing was off. This is why Jesus rebuked them. You see, it was now day they had already learned. Yes, night was coming, but but as long as it was day, they were to be about grace, mercy, and love. Now was the time of salvation. Now was when God was saving His people through the cross of Christ. He was not to condemn the world, we learn in John 3.17. He didn't send His Son to condemn the world. His ministry was about love, about sacrifice, about salvation through His substitutionary death. Now was the time. Oh, there would be a day of judgment. Don't don't misunderstand. But that day was not the day of judgment. It was the day of salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul taught and reminded the church in Corinth, working together with him then, we appeal to you, Not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we too might be tempted to go down this all too familiar road as these disciples did. A road of immediate judgment and retribution. Thinking that today is the day of judgment. What do I mean? What I mean is is that you and I are tempted to refuse the gospel to someone who's offended us. How easy it is for us to refuse to extend grace and mercy and love to someone who has harmed us, who has hurt us, who's, who's betrayed us. This is what the disciples do here, and Jesus rebukes them. We're not told exactly what he says to them. But there's so much that he said to them at this point, only our own imaginations could help us. We must be reminded that the gospel is about saving sinners for the glory of Christ. That judgment was paid fully upon the cross of Christ. And so you and I must extend this grace to others. Perhaps you have those in your life that you find the enemy tempting you to withhold the gospel Because you don't think they're worthy of it. Can you consider the the irony of that statement? That you don't think someone is worthy of the gospel because of something they did in their life? We live in a cancel culture. We just want to cancel people all the time. They do something wrong, we cancel them. They're done. They're finished. There's no redemption. There's no reconciliation. There's no salvation. It's, it's a one and done. It's a culture that you and I have become so accustomed to. We cut people off out of our lives rather than extending grace and mercy and love to them. We must continually and steadfastly live this cross-centered life by freely offering salvation to anyone willing to listen. Now, understanding that doesn't mean we throw our pearls to pigs. That doesn't mean that we continually give ourselves. Notice here in the text what happens. 
Verse 56 is, is very instructive. Look at it. It's a simple verse. You could commit it to memory. And they went on to another village. This is not mere transitional words. Luke isn't just helping us move the story forward. This is deeply theological. Jesus doesn't call down fire from heaven. He just goes to the next town. Okay, they reject the gospel. Men, we must move on. The cross is our destination. We must not be distracted with vengeance. We must not be distracted with with anger and hostility. We must be distracted with the cross. We must be determined to get to our destination. There will be those who reject our message. And our response is to leave judgment to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do you believe that? Judgment is the Lord. Jesus simply led His disciples to move on. And yes, elsewhere He will instruct them in chapter 10 to dust the dust of the town off their feet. But He never calls them to judgment. Friend, we must never withhold the Gospel from anyone and seek judgment upon them simply because we don't like them. Because of some ethnic boundaries or economic differences, we must offer the Gospel freely to anyone willing to listen and then move forward if they reject it. Do you live this grace-saturated, cross-determined life that Christ did? A life of sacrifice? I hope that you see here also, very briefly, just want to point this out. In the language that is used here by, Peter, by, uh, by Luke, rather, verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his, set, his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, we understand why they're frustrated because all he wants to do is get to Jerusalem and the Samaritans can't stand Jerusalem. They, they see their land as the, as the promised land, not Jerusalem, as the, plan, as the place where you meet with God. But Luke here, I think, subtly is teaching us a bit of the exclusivity of Christ. This great doctrine that teaches that He is the only way of salvation. In other words, understand this point, that Jesus believed that He was the only way to God. That Jesus Himself believed and taught this. This is not the doctrine of man or of the Reformation or of Augustine. That this is the doctrine of Jesus. Jesus believed He was the only way of salvation. That is why He had such determination in His face. He knew that He was the only plan that God had designed for the redemption of men. And this particular point, Luke will pick up in the sermons of Peter in Acts chapter 4. Jesus was determined to complete the divine mission of His Father that He was sent on. While the disciples thought it was time for judgment, Jesus reminded them that He had come to save and not to condemn. That condemnation will come to those who reject the Messiah, but until that day of judgment. Our mission is to call sinners to repentance and faith. 
So we see following Jesus includes this cross-centered life, but also we see that following Jesus is costly. Look with me here at verse 57 through 62. As Jesus and the disciples continue their journey, Luke records here three people who either seek to follow Jesus or who are invited by Jesus to follow Him. And each of these are recorded for our benefit to demonstrate to us and the disciples of the costliness of following after Christ. Now Luke organizes this in a helpful pattern. Uh, it, It begins and ends with someone coming to Jesus. And in the middle, we have someone who is invited by Jesus. We see, number one here, that following Jesus will cost your comfort. Following Jesus will cost your comfort. The first man that comes to Jesus in verse 57, he comes and says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Notice here the emphasis is on wherever. He comes with great faith and trust. He's ready to give it all to follow. Wherever you go, Jesus, to the heights and to the depths, wherever you go, I will follow you, Jesus. I'm willing to follow you all the way to the cross. But Jesus knows man's heart, doesn't he? And he tests this man's resolve. You say you want to follow me wherever I go, but consider this, I have nowhere to go. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have a home. I don't have a house. There's nothing here that's actually mine. I have no possessions. I'm a nomad of sorts. Look at Jesus' response there in verse 58. And Jesus said to the man, foxes have holes, And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Notice the parallelism there between wherever and nowhere. This is intentional. I'm willing to go wherever, and Jesus says there's nowhere for me to go. He uses here an illustration from the animal world, one that was common to men. That everyone could observe and see. Foxes have holes. What's the point? Well, foxes, these little animals, have places to go and hide. They have places to store their food. They have places for comfort. When they had concerns of impending predators, they have a home to scurry back to. When they were weary and tired from their hunts, they had nests that they could fly back to, these birds of the air, for rest and relaxation. But not Jesus, nor those who follow Him. The Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite title for Himself, says that, the, that He lives without these earthly comforts. He has no place of security or comfort. No place to kick up His feet after a, a long day of preaching in the wilderness. No, Jesus often will resolve Himself and reserve Himself to a a tree to pray by to the Lord to rest his head upon. He had no place when he was feeling vulnerable, when he was feeling exposed that he could find safety in. And neither do those who follow after him. 
Friend, I wonder this morning, is your life one of comfort and security? Is your life marked by an insatiable desire to be comfortable? A comfortable place to rest your head. A comfortable amount in your savings account or in your retirement account. A comfortable living. A comfortable living wages. A comfortable health checkup. A comfortable level of relationships in your life. A sense of security. That you keep people in your lives who, who are loyal and who would never do you wrong. Then perhaps you're not following Jesus. Jesus says those who truly follow Him do not enjoy the earthly comforts of those around them. Finding comfort in possessions. Finding comfort in their homes. Finding comfort in their house and stuff. They do not find comfort in the pleasures of life. But they long for a place of an ending pleasure and enjoyment of the one true and living God. Following Jesus will cost you your comfort. But it will also cost you your time. Notice here in verses 59 and 60. There comes another man, but this man is invited by Jesus. Hey, come and follow me. And at first, the man's response is positive, isn't it? Why, yes, yes, I want to follow you. I would love to follow you, Jesus. I've, I've watched your ministry from afar. It seems to be quite successful. That whole turning fish and bread and multiplying it, that was quite fantastic. I want to get in on that. But first, let me go and bury my father. That three-letter word, but, is perhaps the most damnable word that man ever says to Jesus, but. I will follow you, but I have some other things I must attend to you. We are told that the man questions Jesus and asks him for a bit of a delay. I'll follow you, but can you just wait just a moment? I have some other things on my calendar that I have to attend to first. Then I'll follow you, Jesus. We see in the text, don't we? Perhaps you're scratching your head a bit. Jesus seems to be unreasonable, doesn't he? Of course, the, the one here in this text has a reasonable request. His father has died, or is in the process of dying. It's not really clear. I must first go and bury my father. In a Jewish culture, this would have maybe been up to a year-long process of burying his father, mourning for his father, attending to his father, and so forth. This would have been the highest virtue of a Jew. This would have been the highest virtue of duty among the Israelites to go and bury the dead. And I don't believe Jesus here is minimizing in any way us caring for our parents or caring for those who are dead. That is not Jesus' point. If you think that's Jesus' point, you've missed it entirely. This is akin to Jesus going to the rich young ruler and telling him he has to sell everything and come and follow him. Jesus does not tell us to give up all of our earthly possessions and follow him. No, no. Jesus is going after the idol of this man's heart, and that is time. 
He had a time problem. He had an urgency problem. He was urgent about earthly affairs. He's like Martha, who is about doing service rather than sitting in wonder at the one true and living God that was in her living room. And you and I can be urgent about things that are important in this world, but that have no importance in the economy of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says here, look with me, verse 60, and Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And perhaps he means the spiritual dead to go bury the physical dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that kingdom trumps, the kingdom of God trumps all other responsibilities and relationships here on earth. Jesus is teaching that this man and all those that cared to listen, that the kingdom of God and the tasks that are required thereof would pale in comparison to the responsibilities that you and I have in this world. Jesus is challenging this man's use of time and the urgency by which he went about life. The urgency of evangelism was so great that the, the, the judgment of God was, was so impending that they must not fiddle around with things that didn't matter, but they must pursue the kingdom of God and tell everyone that judgment was coming and that Jesus had provided a way through the cross. In other words, like Jesus, He must be about the Father's business. He must be about proclaiming the kingdom of God. But friend, what about you? What about us as a congregation? How urgent are we about our own priorities, our own personal preferences, our own lives, our own schedules? How much of it is, are we, are we under the urgency that there is a community in which you and I have divinely and sovereignly been placed in that is all going to hell while we sit around and play church? while we sit around and soak up all the enjoyments and blessings that God has given us in our lives? Do we have no sense of urgency that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead? Friend, do you realize that those friends and family that you converse with every day, that you withhold the gospel from for whatever strange reason, they will die eternally in hell. All because you had other more important things to do? Surely as we sit back in eternity, we won't look in regret at the things that we have taken up our time with, will we? Oh, I think we will. We'll regret those idle days while those around us needed to hear about this coming judgment and the one who came to die the death they deserved. For in such a day of judgment is coming. Therefore, as Jesus says to this man, we must be urgent to herald the good news of Christ. So it cost us our comfort. It cost us our time. And lastly here, it cost us our priorities. 
Similar to the second one, though slightly different, verses 61 and 62 outlines this idea that following Jesus will cost your priorities. The the scene shifts back to a man who comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you. Look there, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you. I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. There it is again, that, that dreaded word. But let me go first and say farewell. Again, a, a very reasonable request, is it not? I mean, he just wanted to go say bye to his, his wife and kids. And no doubt the disciples are standing there and saying, Jesus, we've been with you for two years now on this journey. You took us out of our boats. We were fishing. We were just minding our own business one day, trying to make a buck. And and you come along, and you call us out of our boats. We leave everything behind, our friends, our family, our father's business. It it may be failing now, for all we know. And, And we've been about this for two years. I mean, the poor guy just wants to go say bye to his family. What's the big deal? Again, Jesus knows the heart of man. And this man's priorities he knew was out of order. He knew that this man would not endure to the end, that he had no persevering spirit in him because of his own priorities. Notice what he says to them. Jesus said to the man, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one, he says, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those here, Jesus says, that follow after me must do so with resolve and perseverance. He must focus on what is ahead of him, not what lies behind him. That those who follow after Christ must not have any regret. What a sorry case it is when you hear a Christian glorify their past rather than lament the brokenness and wretchedness of their own sin. We hear it all the time in these so-called testimonies where people stand before you and declare about how, how glorious of a time, oh, let me tell you how bad of a sinner I was. Let me tell you about all the partying I did and all these evil things I used to do. And they, and they, they make sin to be something glorious, like, like that was the good life and now they're on, you know, an okay life. That was this man. We've all experienced this in our own lives when we've driven down the road. You've learned perhaps when you were learning how to drive that you're not to look too long to the left or you'll begin to veer to the left. Don't look too long to the right, out your right window, because what will happen is you'll begin to veer to the right. And Jesus says, a man who grabs a plow and begins to plow doesn't look back and say, well, am I doing a good job? Is it straight or not? Because as he begins to look back at how straight his plowing his, he'll begin to veer off course. Jesus here has a picture in the mind of his disciples of a singular devotion, an unfettered attraction to what lies ahead and not the glories of what seemed to be in the past. In other words, Jesus here is concerned about their priorities, what they focused on, what they prioritized in their life, what what they 
worshipped. You see, our priorities reveals our hearts. What we find most important is what shows up in our affections, in the things we do. Your your schedule, your calendar, you do things that are most important to you. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow after me, I must be not merely at the top of your list, I must be preeminent over your list. In other words, I'm number one in every single aspect of your life. From one to 100, I am number one over each and every one of those. That his disciples must not be like Lot's wife, who looked back on fondness at the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and was turned into a pillar of salt. That the disciples of Jesus must not be like the nation of Israel, who looked back on their captivity in Egypt with fondness and thought about how good it was to be a slave. But they must have, like we heard from the Apostle Paul, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. This is the way a disciple thinks. With a determination. With a priority. Friend, which of these three men are you? Where are you struggling to count the cost of following Jesus? Perhaps you're struggling with the comforts and security that is all around you. Oh, this world offers a tremendous amount of comfort, a tremendous amount of security and safety, but following after Christ means you have nothing. You count everything you have as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. Perhaps even now you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, yet are consumed by worldly comforts. Brother, sister, let me encourage you to forsake that way. That road only leads to destruction. Perhaps you're the one whose time remains unredeemed. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus that we ought to redeem the time for the days are evil. Do you have a sense of urgency about the work you have as a disciple? Or are you saying, you know, I'll get to the things of God when I get time? Do you have a sense of urgency? How do you spend your time? Do you devote a, a significant amount of time to following after Christ? Do you spend time reading and praying to know Him better? Do you devote time to knowing other Christians here in this congregation, and to helping them follow Jesus? Do you invest adequate time to developing relationships with non-Christians with the point and purpose of extending a gospel call in their life? Perhaps you're like the last man. It's not comfort or time that troubles you. It is your own priorities. It's you. This is why Jesus told his disciples there at the beginning of chapter 9 
that if you want to follow me, the very first step is self-denial. You have to surrender your priorities. You simply cannot do both. You cannot have Jesus and your own way. You can't go two ways. It's impossible. Friend, where is your heart? Where are you devoted? Is it to Christ or is it to yourself? The call to follow after Christ is ultimately a call to go to the cross and die. Jesus' life was marked by this cross-centeredness, wasn't it not? A sacrifice of, of comfort of heaven and the glorious throne, an ending worship of angels around the throne of His Father, yet He laid it all aside, clothed Himself in, in humanity that He might save you. His entire life is marked by a lack of comfort. Do you not think that Jesus had more time on His hand? His urgency was about the Father's business. For He knew the clock was ticking. That judgment day was coming. Friend, we must understand that it is our act of worship of the one true and living God to live in this way. We must die to ourselves and live to righteousness. We must remember that the day that today is the day of salvation, that our responsibility is to take the gospel to the nations, not to call down fire from heaven upon these wretched people around us. Friend, you deserve, and I deserve, fire to be called down from heaven upon our lives because of our own unrighteousness. Friend, we must be those who are dispensers of grace and not judgment. Do you desire to follow after Christ? Then count the cost. It is a glorious cost. It is a wondrous cross. One pastor reminds us of this. While we have been reminded repeatedly in Luke's gospel that following Christ is costly, we must remember that 100%, 100% of the costs are incurred in the temporal realm. None are born in the eternal one. The costs are far outstriped by the never-ending joy that belongs to those whose names are written into heaven. It is costly to follow Christ, but those costs are temporal. And what awaits you and I is an eternal realm where there will be no tear or sorrow anymore but an endless, unending joy for the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, our prayer in this new year is that we too would count the cost. That our lives would be marked by the cross of Christ. A life of sacrifice and servitude to the one who died for us. Jesus is our Lord, and we do want to go His way. And though we know that this road is difficult, it is a narrow road, it is often hard to, to walk upon, we feel ourselves slipping off at either side, whether it be because we desire the comforts of this world, 
or because we have no urgency about the task at hand, we grow slow and weary, or perhaps our priorities are out of sort and and our gaze is upon the past rather than what lies ahead of us, this glorious kingdom that is coming. Oh, Christ Jesus, let our have our eyes fixed upon you, our gaze upon this eternal hope, whether it cost us our life and even through death. 